it's a wonderful hospital, which I think, as Mr. Charles Hawley says, that the uh, uh, very words I and ear in Dublin are the same way as, um, what do you call them, Crampton's, the builders, and other well-known sites in Dublin that have remained here for well over a hundred, we're nearly a hundred years old now. Mm. And I would agree with him, it's something that rings in the ear quite easily, like Cox and Box or Flanagan and Allen or things like that to come together. But the eye and ear is synonymous for Dubliners for what it has done. Tell me about the characters. Well, first of all, I should think the earliest memory as a small boy coming here with my father before I ever went to even secondary school was going down into the basement of the hospital where he had to see some children. But we had here a maid, Katie. And Katie stood at the top of the steps with her hand on that small table which is now in the council room. And she was dressed like a Victorian maid, like Mrs Bridges in upstairs, downstairs. She had a cap, an apron, a black frock down to her ankles, black shoes, black stockings, red hair in the Victorian style, and she elegantly directed the patients to where they should go when they came up the steps into the main hospital. And Katie did that with great humour, always smiling. One day she said, I'm not feeling well, went downstairs and died. Now, with your right eye, can you tell me if you see anything on the board in front of you? Can you see the top letter? H. H, yes. Good man. The next one? That's all I'm going to make out. Right. And with your left eye? Top letter again? I can barely make out the H, but that's all. Good. The next two? No. You sure? Yeah. Right one. Because this chemical is supposed to be washed off thoroughly before putting in contact lenses. So he made a mistake with his solutions and got this chemical in his eye, which caused quite severe damage. Oh. He was treated here last night, and he's back now today for a checkup to see if he's improving. This chap has really burnt the windows of each eye with a chemical solution for storing contact lenses. Unfortunately, he used the wrong solution. Look down now for me, Patrick. And his large central area in the right eye, uh, which has been abraded or burnt completely, and it's the same in that left eye. Look straight ahead now. I, I, I think you're from Edenderry, isn't that right? Yeah. Look. I think that the best thing for you to do would be to come in for a few days with us. Yeah. Because it's it's going to take a while for those to clear up and uh, they're quite painful at the moment, are they? Um, not as bad as no, yesterday. No, not as bad. Uh, yes, yeah. we're just feeling sensations. We're just, you know, lumps yeah. of dirt in your eye all the time. That's how we feel. We're going to have to double pad you again yeah. because the both eyes are involved and uh, really the best place for you would be to to stop with us yeah um <clears throat> it will take a few days for that to heal up but it will heal up and yeah. the vision will return yeah um it's just a matter of some more active treatment yeah this type of problem with contact lenses is quite quite common in that patients will they'll overwear the lenses or they'll use the wrong solutions and uh, that poor chap he's, he's in a dreadful state really um he needs to come in. Um, people should 
I think as regards contact lenses, be very specific about wearing times and solutions. This is a small hospital catering for two specialities, diseases of the eyes and diseases of the ear, nose and throat. It caters for the sick who suffer from these diseases on an individual basis. The attitude and policy of the council, which is the influencing factor in determining this policy, is that this hospital should run as a small hospital looking after individuals sick. Our patient population uh, varies in age from two to three weeks to over 90. It's a very vast spread of, of age. Uh, we get to know the patients. The young child who comes in here, now we've had a little boy recently, he came to us at two weeks and he's now six weeks, or six months. And we've each and every one of us watched him grow and see him um, mature. He has a eye condition which uh, is common enough, it's an infantile glaucoma, buchthalmus, and Mr Walsh has been looking after this young patient and he has uh, been to theatre very many times. A common problem that we get here is uh, a child being brought in because it's not speaking properly or pronouncing the words correctly and uh, this provokes a good deal of anxiety at home and uh, in the school and um, very often there is no uh, real disorder in the child's moulds of speech so to speak its lips tongues teeth and palate may be entirely normal but very often the child is simply not hearing well and uh, it is not hearing particularly the consonants that are important for the meaning of words and um, when we examine the ears, we often find <coughs> that there is a thick, tenacious, gluey-like material in the ear. This is believed to be due to an infective process and possibly due to adenoids or allergy. Uh, it's a simple matter to diagnose this, to reassure the parents and to treat the child. It often requires uh, incision of the eardrums, suctioning out of the fluid, and the insertion of a small ventilating tube or grommet. A lot of people have heard of these grommets and they're not sure whether it's a small animal or some other extraordinary thing. But in fact, it's nothing more than a small ventilating tube and it stays in the ear for some months and the child he hearing improves immediately. We are the National Referral Centre. Uh, we have patients from all over the world. Uh, not six weeks ago, I had a telex from Port of Spain, Trinidad. Uh, requesting that we would, uh, could we give uh, the name of somebody who would look after a young diabetic patient who needed the trectomy and we had no problem, the patient was taken in and uh, is currently being investigated both from the diabetes end of things and from his eye point of view. And there's no lift. <laughs> no. But the volume of work has increased since I came here. And that's when we see about 30,000 patients, maybe 35 a year. But now we're seeing about 120,000 a year. That's without admissions. That's what we see in the outpatients. There are seven different sites recorded during the 19th century. But I suppose the man 
I'm more than suppose, I am certain the man who uh, was most instrumental in the setting up of uh, a living eye hospital in Dublin was uh, Sir William Wilde, the famous father of Oscar Wilde. And uh, he uh, who was a man, uh, he was a polymath, a man of very many uh, abilities because he was not only a near, a near nose and throat and a nice surgeon, but he was also uh, the man who took the first census in Ireland and he did it so well that he was uh, called on again and again to do the same operation. But he was a very brilliant man. And uh, he set up the house, the uh, hospital, uh, which started in Mark Street. Now, most Dublin people may be at a loss to know where Mark Street is, but if you think of uh, a church, a former church in Pierce Street called St. Mark's, it was a Church of Ireland church, now closed, now belonging to Trinity College and used for their purposes. The street adjoining this is Mark Street, and this is where the very first foundation of William Wilde's was situated. Well, he moved from that to a number of other different sites, uh, the most, the best known of them uh, being uh, the um, that in Lincoln Place, part of the building of which is still extant. You can actually see from old pictures uh, that there is a fragment of uh, a building that is still there. And uh, one of the interesting things that I recall about that particular site is that uh, on one occasion, uh, there was a public request that to save the um, patients the annoyance and distress of the considerable noise of horse hoofs clopping by and drays with iron tires, uh, the street outside was uh, padded with straw to save the patients' ears. <laughs> Uh, in the 19th century, the Royal Institution and the Wild Institution were separate foundations. Now, the Wild Institution uh, continued from somewhere in the 1840s, and the Royal Institution uh, was uh, per not perpetuated, but continued through a number of different foundations which occupied the various sites that I mentioned here. And coming along towards the 1880s, there was increasing pressure on the councils of the two hospitals to um, make an amalgamation. And uh, eventually, after uh, a great deal of negotiation, uh, they were amalgamated in 19 1897. The story connected with this is rather uh, interesting in that the two councils could not come to agreement on the name of the hospital. The two amalgamating hospitals were respectively St. Mark's and the National Eye and Ear Hospital. And of course St. Mark's wanted to be called St. Mark's Eye and Ear Hospital and the National wanted to be called the National. And they didn't seem to be able to compromise in calling it St. Mark's National Eye and Ear Hospital. And in those days, of course, we were under a different rule to now and it was Queen Victoria's Jubilee. And there was a, a rash of Royal Victoria Eye and Ear Hospitals all over the world. In fact, there is a Royal Victoria and Eye and Ear Hospital in Australia. And uh, we became a Royal Victoria. So that there is a Royal Victoria in Dublin and there's a Royal Victoria in Belfast, which is the main hospital there. Um, this Royal Victoria title has been uh, a source of considerable um, annoyance to various people uh, at the present time, but inasmuch as it is instituted by charter, uh, it seems more expedient to um, not to change it.
it would cause a great deal of upset. Undoubtedly, the master figure at the foundation of the hospital was Sir Henry Swansea. He was uh, a man of considerable achievement in ophthalmology, but he was also a superb organiser, from all I can gather. Uh, there was a, uh, a lady called uh, Mrs Harvey Lewis, who, in memory of her husband, bequeathed uh, a certain um, sum of money, a large sum in, by the, the standards of those days, this would be in the early, the teens of this century, and uh, it was um, earmarked for one of a number of charities, and happily the Ioneer fell heir to this, and as a result the uh, private wing of the hospital was built with these funds, now known as the Harvey Lewis wing. The E of the whole block, the Harvey Lewis wing, Mrs Harvey Lewis left money in her will to the Ioneer hospital, but she left it to a relative who on his uh, death he was the uh, money was to revert to the hospital he was a cab driver and uh, his newfound wealth was too much for him in several senses of the world and he died within a year of receiving the bequest and uh, the then staff decided to complete the hospital which they did with that money which was not unusual in dublin for people to leave their wealth to dublin I suppose we must mention the influence of Sir William Wilde and his son, his natural son, Henry Wilson, whose portrait is in the boardroom down here. He called him Wilson, Wilde's son, and he educated him abroad when he came to manhood. He qualified as a doctor. He went to Belgium, Germany, Austria. This is Wilson, he got on the staff of the Richmond Hospital published the first treatise in English on the ophthalmoscope. Unfortunately, predeceased his father because he was only 41. Uh, he died of pneumonia, and he lived in 27 Lower Bagger Street, near where my rooms are at present. Uh, nobody knows who uh, Wilson's uh, mother was. It is believed that she was an actress named Moll Travers. So William, as to quote my late friend Professor Abrahamson about certain people, was a generous soul, not at all niggardly with his passions, do you see? So it, 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 this is what is believed. And their influence on eye and ear work still remains to this day. Like Oscar uh, has been such a force in playwrights and literature, so have Sir William Wilde and his natural son, Henry Wilson, being this great influence. And in America, tremendous influence is about the Wilde family. They want to know all about them. Mm. There was a sister that died, and she's buried in Longford. But we here, we have not, I don't think we have emphasised publicly, as other areas have, how much these specialities have added to world influence in eye and ear work. In 1916, appropriately, the medical board here divided the hospital into two, I and ENT. One third of the beds to go to the ENT, two thirds to the I. And this happy partition <laughs> remains to this day. <laughs> this is a 13 year old uh, child for tonsillectomy, which is the most common surgical operation performed of all branches of surgery. Tonsillectomy remains the most common surgical procedure. Yes. Now, the majority of uh, younger children would have associated ear problems, but in this particular instance, this girl has simply been complaining of chronic tonsillitis with recurring sore throats, and is uh, simply having her tonsils removed. 
we have become quite conservative nowadays as regards removing chances. <coughs> 15, 20 years ago, most children in every national school that was seen by the medical officer was listed for tonsillectomy and our adenoidectomy. <coughs> This position has changed, which is very good. The majority of children having their tonsils out nowadays are having a lot of true tonsillitis. We only remove the tonsils in their own right. Our figures are about two and a half to three thousand per annum, which means that uh, it's never very good at the figures, but divided by ten, that would be about two hundred and fifty or so per annum about, per month. About, yeah. Yes. Yes. which is a large number. Mm. There are a lot of ENT problems throughout the country and most of the ENT waiting lists are very long. Yes. We could really do with more appointments in ENT. There's a great demand. It is a specialty that has not expanded but rather contracted in the past 10 to 15 years. And hopefully this position will be rectified. Mm. Our greatest worry really is small children who are deaf. There's an educational consideration here. It's a tragedy if those children are missed. Uh, but also, um, if they are not treated for this condition, they go on to develop chronic ear disease at a later date. And the hearing loss may not be correctable at this stage, which is a tragedy. Also, deaf children, it has been shown, develop psychological problems. And apart from the hearing loss, do very poorly at school compared with their peers. It's a very important consideration. In the adults, our greatest problem would be head and neck malignancy. We see a lot of this and deal with a lot of head and neck cancer um, nowadays, particularly in this particular department. So we run a combined clinic with a radiotherapist from uh, St. Luke's Hospital. I look upon this operation in a completely different light since I had my own tonsils removed <laughs> some four to five years ago. <laughs> it said it's a completely different operation than what else? As an adult, it is quite painful, really, but um, for the right indications, it's a super operation. It uh, cures your tonsillitis, which can be a very debilitating and uh, miserable condition for those that suffer on a regular basis. We cross-check the chart. Uh, it has been checked four times. The anaesthetist has checked that we have the right patient. The nurses checked to make sure when they were getting the eye ready that they were preparing the correct eye. And I have checked my own notes on the chart which says that we will do a right squint operation, a left squint operation, I should say, on this child, which is exactly what we're setting out to do. So we've got the left eye ready and we're now about to uh, get ahead and do the job. So it's, it's extremely important uh, to check the eyes because everybody knows that uh, wrong operations have been done on, on the wrong patients and even legs have been amputated. Uh, and it has been known that eyes have been removed uh, this would be extremely rare and in a hospital like this extremely almost it, it, it would be impossible to happen because the checks are so uh, complete and so many people do the checks so that sort of thing wouldn't be a problem here uh, it's drummed into every medical student every student nurse uh, knows this and of course the surgeons who are used to doing this day after day will be quite used to doing it or to being, being very careful as well
Yeah, she's, she's divergent. And if I can see the orthoptic report again, please. She's about minus 15, so we'll resect the medial rectus and we'll recess the lateral rectus. Okay? There are very few voluntary hospitals in Ireland left. There's a lot of work to be done on a voluntary basis, and I think that this is an opportunity for people to fulfil their social duty, in the best sense of that word. This is a hospital that has two main specialisms, eye and ENT, and in size it consists of 164 beds, two-thirds of which are eye and one-third of which are ear, nose and throat, or ENT. It has four main departments, those two, eye and ENT, and pathology and anaesthesia, in addition to which there is a research foundation where some very valuable work is done in both specialties. The order of activity is about 100,000 per annum in terms of outpatient attendances, uh, not counting the attendances at the hyper-specialised clinics like glaucoma, orthoptic and so on, of which there are a range of about roughly 10. And we have admissions of the order of 7,000 each year against a continually falling average duration of stay we have a continually rising level of admissions so we're a busy hospital um, our outpatients is probably one of the busiest in the country and our occupancy level is high and the throughput is very fast as you know one of the great eye surgeons in the past in Dublin was Sir William Wilde who was the father of Oscar Wilde and it's rather amusing that Bernard Shaw wrote a letter about his father being operated on by Sir William Wilde and in those days if you were operating on a squint which was a condition which Bernard Shaw's father had you did the operation by dividing the muscles that were pulling the eyes inwards and you hadn't any elaborate method of stitching the eye muscles to the ball as you have nowadays, with the result that when you divided these muscles and they reattached themselves, sometimes they didn't attach themselves in exactly the position you would like, and you might get the eye going crooked, producing a sort of Marty Feldman effect. And that, unfortunately, must have been what happened in the case of Bernard Shaw's father, because he wrote afterwards, Sir William Wilde conferred on my father the doubtful benefit of being able to look up and down Sackville Street without having to turn his head. And I can't help feeling that this unfortunate result was probably one of the things which rather influenced Bernard Shaw against doctors, as you know from the doctor's dilemma and other things. I think the hospital has, for a long, long time, adopted a far too low profile. I think the private nature of its organisation has not been in its best interest. At the same time, I think the fact that it's a private voluntary hospital has been one of, one of its positive features and one of its good features because it really is a private, independent charity serving the whole of the sick of this country on a non-denominational basis. My colleagues here who are second to none anywhere in the quality of the work, but they're a rather self-effacing group as a result of which the hospital has, shall I say, very little image with the public. 
they feel that if you get a bit of dirt in the eye that you go to die an ear and have it removed and that's it. They don't realise the good work that's been done here and I'm afraid a lot of other countries don't realise it either. Of over 100% bed occupancy, <coughs> a waiting list of over 1,000 patients for surgery and uh, a 10% increase in the number of outpatients treated during the last year. The um, spectrum or scope of ENT has increased greatly in the last number of years. Um, patients of course come here with all kinds of problems with their ears, both hearing and balance problems, infections and so on, with which a lot of people are familiar. But in addition we treat conditions in the nose and throat, the neck generally, and we deal in particular with special senses, for example taste and uh, smell, which are very important. Um, the simple act of swallowing uh, is something people don't even think about. They, everyone likes to go home in the evening and have a good meal and possibly a drink or two. But we see patients who cannot perform even the simple function. And um, in some cases it may be due to a serious condition such as um, cancer of the throat. And um, contrary to popular opinions, it's now feasible to um, treat these patients so that they may lead a relatively normal life afterwards provided they are referred in reasonable time. And um, I must say that the general practitioners who refer patients to this hospital are very much on the ball nowadays and refer patients early. Uh, a particular type of um, case we get is um, a patient suffering from hoarseness. Now, hoarseness is an extremely uh, common problem. People get it from shouting too much with a cold at a football match, cheering on the local team and so on, or perhaps a hard night smoking and drinking. But there are, it may be the early sign of something serious in the vocal cord, such as a tumour. Now, the vast majority of patients who are hoarse do not have tumours, but for somebody who has a persistent hoarseness, their vocal cords should be examined <coughs> by an expert uh, ENT surgeon. It only takes a matter of a few minutes to diagnose the problem. And if it is not a serious thing, the patient can be reassured and months of worry and anxiety can be obviated. On the other hand, if there is a tumor there and it's the duration of symptoms have been short, it is probably well within the bounds of curability. I find that 81 patients entered this hospital in the ear, nose and throat department alone on every day last year, including Christmas Day, Sunday, holidays and every other day. Some days we may see as many as 200 patients in the ear, nose and throat department and remember that the eye department is a much bigger one than ours. Do you often get uh, situations where you can actually give people back their speech? Oh yes, there are many um, instances of this. Usually it's patients who have not perhaps totally lost their voice but have got a very muffled or unintelligible voice from some disease of the larynx or vocal cords. It's very often possible to uh, improve the situation dramatically. There are patients too who've had uh, perhaps total laryngectomy, in other words a whole voice box removed. And a very high percentage of these, depending a bit on age and motivation, can learn to speak 
again, very well by means of an esophageal voice. And their accent is quite unchanged. I mean, if they come from Belfast, they don't speak like a corkman afterwards. Is that right? Yes, because the moulds of speech are the same, the teeth, tongue, palate, and all the things that give, her our, give us our characteristic um, accent, they are unchanged. It's just the, the means of voice production or sound production or phonation is slightly altered. A young lad down here in the ground floor who recently was admitted, he was involved in a car accident and he had part of his nose missing and his upper eyelid. He had plastic surgery and he had innumerable uh, abrasions and contusions and all the rest. Today you wouldn't recognise him as the same man. Uh, his healing is well underway and he is, is, is quite happy and content now. Uh, uh, next door there's a member of the Garda Siakana. He was on patrol the other day uh, and uh, an ambush was set up, bricked through the window and uh, he is in now being investigated for query retinal detachment. Since the seatbelts have come into uh, legislation on the seatbelts, I think our numbers would be down, but we still have the people who said, I was only going around the corner. They feel that they should wear them on long journeys. I know myself, I wear my seatbelt all the time. Uh, since I worked in theatre and saw the type of injuries that came in there, and if these people would realise the, you know, I have seen doctors working hours and hours on end trying to retain uh, what they could of sight for people. Uh, initially, when the patient came in, he, the diagnosis might be saying, well, that eye is useless. But nevertheless, uh, they will work on it, and uh, the patient is seeing with that eye. But on the other hand, there are the patients whose eyes are so badly injured that there's nothing to do but to remove it. Uh, my father was introduced to Sean O'Casey by Dr. Commons, and they used to have dinners together outside with O'Casey. O'Casey was an avowed militant socialist, and he railed against my father and uh, Joe Commons about capitalism. And one occasion my father said he'd listened to it so often, he said, well, Sean, he said, surely, he said, if you're going to destroy something, you've got to replace it with something better. What have you got to offer, you see? So they ended on that note. But on one evening when O'Casey joined them, he said to my father, I'm delighted, he said. I, I, I was very tired. I was working last night. I finished a play, and I have for weeks been unable to get a title for it. And I was sitting in my room, as he wrote at night in the dark, and a man came along and stood beside a gas-lit lamp standard, and his shadow fell across the street. And Sean said, I've got it. The title of the play is The Shadow of a Gunman. We cater for 500 in total, 160 patients and 350 staff. Occasionally we have um, a foreign patient, a Muslim maybe, or someone very unusual from abroad that have a special religious thing about their food or maybe a vegetarian or that and um, we go up and have a word with them and you know they tell us what they like and what they have at home what they usually have and we try to provide what they usually have at home we don't have uh, any difficulty with the patients very very rarely once in a blue moon maybe and then it's just that they want to see another face, they're lonely and the day is dragging on for them and they want a bit of variety in the day. They may not have too many visitors 
and that's more the problem than their food. I think the food is the least of their worries. Do you get irate patients coming to you with complaints? Yes. Usually if somebody does come to me, their complaint is well-founded. Um, it may be based on a misconception, but as they see it, it's a perfectly well-founded complaint. And having gone through all those levels in the, in the system, they are irate by the time they come to me. What's the normal um, complaint? The normal complaint is the most frequent one I was kept waiting too long. Um, the next frequent one is probably that they feel that they had the wrong treatment or not enough of the treatment they wanted. The third sort of complaint um, that one would be most concerned about would be where someone said that their child came in and that they weren't satisfied that he or she was looked after with sufficient sympathy. And sympathy is such a, an all-embracing term that you have to go into that fairly carefully to see what they mean. If there is any substance, it's the most serious complaint that could be made about a patient, particularly a child. Uh, and at that stage, everyone would become involved from the council or governing body to the person, including the porter they saw at the door. We set up a postgraduate school in addition to the undergraduate school, and that was approved in 1948, and it hadn't existed anywhere else. So Moorfields Eye Hospital got in touch with us about this, and we amalgamated the training and set up an ophthalmic board and uh, it became the Ophthalmic Board of Great Britain and Ireland. That was the start of the Ophthalmic Nursing uh, Diploma course for registered nurses. It has expanded now, and uh, we have nurses in the five continents of the world who have bought the name of this hospital and the importance of ophthalmology to society all over the world. Continuing education for our own nursing staff, I think it is important. And uh, with the cooperation of all the members of staff here, we have been doing that. Hopefully, in the not-too-distant future, we would hope that we would have run a one-day seminar here for nurses who are working in the eye or the ENT field throughout Ireland, refresher courses. Prior to this, if you wanted refreshing, you went to London, you went to Moorfields. Now, I feel, we have the expertise here. We don't need to go outside the city. The X-ray department has taken 20 years before it has reached its completion as it is today. It took a tremendous amount of constant traipsing back and forth to the Custom House with different secretaries of the Department of Health, with different civil servants, until finally it reached a stage when we really thought we were never going to see it. But it was due to the efforts we better not mention him, of one of the contemporary secretaries of the Department of Health, plus a Minister of State in the Department of Health that really gave it the last push to get it underway. And in that reason, it may seem strange to people that this very valuable asset to any hospital took so long to put into effect. It is probable, and we don't really know the cogent reasons, there were a great deal of political reasons for not developing it, as there has been a constant difference as to whether a specialist hospital should operate on its own or whether it should be on what is described as a campus with other hospitals. Personally, I don't see any reason to support that. The maternity hospitals are separate from general hospitals, except in the Royal Victoria Hospital in Belfast. 
in my own situation, in another hospital that I've worked with, I had a separate building for my speciality, and yet I need never have had any contact with anybody all the time I worked there. And I think that perhaps deep down there was some reason for not allowing this important development. The idea to me um, means two things. It means, subjectively as I see it, uh, in, in the job I do, uh, and the police itself viewed objectively. Um, viewed objectively, I see it as a place of specialised excellence. I, I understand that there is nowhere in Europe where you will find 12 ophthalmologists and six otorhinolaryngologists under one roof, all interested in those two areas alone. And a backup staff or an allied staff of supporting doctors, non-consultant doctors, and an anaesthetic and pathology department, all focusing on those two specialisms. And that allied to the fact that each consultant in that group has a certain interest of his or her own. Uh, for example, an ophthalmologist may be interested in, in detached retina. Um, means a lot of specialisation around the area of the body above the neck and a tremendous pool of, of hyper-specialised knowledge so that if a patient goes through all the healthcare levels there are to go through and ends up in the eye and ear, uh, unless they are totally incurable with the state of universal medical knowledge, they're going to find somebody here who can confer with someone else no matter what is discovered when he comes in. Mm. To put a, the facilities such as we have here in the eye and ear <coughs> into a general hospital would mean that those 104,000 patients would become a number and would not be individuals with names, their personal needs being catered for. And I would question whether placing individual hospitals on that vast number into a big general hospital is in the interest of the patient. It's interesting to look at the way eye disease has developed and indeed undeveloped over the years. Uh, back in the 20s and 30s in this country, people were very interested in diseases such as trachoma particularly, which was one of the major uh, incapacitating diseases and indeed one of the blinding diseases. During those times, enormous work was done and the disease was eradicated in this country so that nowadays the younger ophthalmologists simply see the aftermath of the disease and really people like myself have never seen a true case of trachoma. The emphasis, uh, because of the advances in uh, scientific knowledge, have changed completely and we're now very interested in virus disease. And the virus that comes to mind most readily is herpes simplex, which is the virus which produces cold sores on mouths and lips. And everyone who has been in the sun or has been in the snow has experienced the uh, pain and the discomfort associated with them. Well, this virus also affects the front of the eye and is one of the major causes of ocular morbidity in our country. Fortunately, a lot of research is going on and over the next decade it's likely that uh, a lot of the questions will be answered and just like trachoma has disappeared and like tuberculous eye disease has by and large receded, it's likely that herpetic eye disease will at least be treatable if not eradicable. Microsurgery is very much in the news now and uh, a lot of surgical specialties are more or less discovering it. I'd like to say that it's been in use in ENT or otolaryngology since about 1956 and it is extensively used on all ear surgery 
and a lot of throat and sinus surgery, uh, not to mention our colleagues in the ophthalmic department. The patients are really what matter, and they're getting good treatment, and they're happy here. And uh, I can only at this stage pay a tribute to the matron and our nursing staff. Uh, I've had patients here, and my younger colleagues have had many here, who are happier here than any other hospital they were in. They, they get excellent treatment and personal attention, and it's homely. They're very happy here. It would be a tragedy if a hospital like ours became run down in any way through lack of funding. Uh, one is very aware that modern equipment is enormously expensive, but the public in Dublin have always appreciated this hospital. Uh, recently, for example, uh, a new uh, research unit uh, in which work is done on the eye and on diseases of the ear, nose and throat was opened. Uh, this was opened because the public responded to an appeal. And again, more recently, uh, something in the region of £800,000 has been spoken for, which will improve drastically also the facilities that uh, we have and which we are trying at all times to update. Uh, a hospital like ours wants to give the best service it can. It wants to have the best facilities. After all, health is the right of every citizen, and we must therefore aim at having not alone a building which is efficient, but the staff that are efficient, staff that are the best that we can get, and of course the best equipment that we can possibly buy. Uh, a lot of the great pleasures in life are derived from the I and ENT area, the pleasures of looking, just looking at things and um, being able to hear one's fellow man and um, enjoy a chat and um, to smell one's food. The enjoyment of food depends even more on smell than on taste and of course the ability to, to swallow it and all this isn't much good if you can't uh, speak as well. So these are all very vital and very human functions and um, as I say this hospital deals with the whole wide spectrum of them and is continuing to improve every day. There's no question that there have been spectacular improvements in ophthalmology and ENT surgery. There's equally no doubt about it that these improvements were needed because in the old days, and that's only going back perhaps two decades, the techniques weren't as good as they should be considering how delicate an eye and a middle ear is. The Eye and Ear Hospital has always been in the forefront in the use and development of the techniques that I've just mentioned and now with the advent of microscopes, microsurgery and microinstrumentation, this progress will continue and in the future the Eye and Ear Hospital will, I have no doubt, be to the forefront of the development of these techniques. Medicine is full of jargon and technical terms, but I don't think I've ever heard so many technical terms which are very, very difficult even to say as attached to the Eye and Ear Hospital, like you mentioned, orthoptics and ophthalmology, and then otorhinolaryngology. My goodness me, I don't even know how you say that. Well, I like saying that for the simple reason that it's so difficult. That is the first 